chapter 11. And before I read from that passage, I want to thank you because I recently saw Heritage on a list of uh, churches that support MA Chaplain Ministries as a part of your missions budget. Uh, MNA, Mission North America, is the um, organization that oversees 23 different ministries of the PCA, including chaplain ministries. And the PCA is part of a larger organization called the PRCC, the Presbyterian and Reformed Commission on Chaplains. And we provide endorsements and training and pastoral support for uh, PCA chaplains and also those of six other denominations. Uh, we have 325 chaplains around the world, mostly military, but we also have some hospice chaplains, hospital chaplains, a few uh, chaplains serving with the Bureau of Prisons, and some volunteer chaplains with police and, and fire stations and so forth, but mostly uh, military and mostly PCA. The PRCC is about 70% uh, PCA chaplains, and it's my privilege, uh, thanks to your donations, to travel around and visit our chaplains and encourage them. You know, chaplains can be very lonely. Chaplains are ordained ministers, but they're serving in organizations outside the church. So, especially for our military chaplains who are on active duty, they're all around the world. They are staff officers, but they're just not really normally one of the guys, you know, on, on, a, on a military staff. They're, they're, they can be very lonely. So it's my privilege to travel around and visit them and encourage them, and, and your donations uh, make that possible. As Daniel mentioned, um, before serving with m Chaplain Ministries, I was the pastor of Crossroads, a PCA congregation in Woodbridge. It was uh, 23 years ago, right today, today I was beginning my uh, final semester at Covenant Theological Seminary and looking forward to coming here to Woodbridge to plant a new PCA congregation. Uh, we, had an or uh, we had a group of people from Harvester Presbyterian up in Springfield who helped us get started, including Chris and Cheryl Andrews. Uh, when I was ordained a new teaching elder, uh, Chris was ordained a new ruling elder, and we were two-thirds of the session of Crossroads. And uh, Cheryl was our first uh, volunteer financial administrator, and Chris and Cheryl hosted one of our small groups, and uh, such a joy to now see them here uh, plugging in to Heritage. So please do uh, turn in your Bibles to Hebrews chapter 11. If you're using one of the Bibles uh, you've got in front of you, you'll find the passage on page 1195. Now, if you are a Christian, you are an adopted child of God. Uh, your status as an adopted child of God came by faith. At some point in your life, you recognized that you were not perfect, you needed a Savior, and you reached out and embraced Jesus as your Savior by faith. And by that, I mean that you put your faith and trust in Christ for the forgiveness of your sins. And when that happened, whenever that was, and for some people you know exactly when it was, others it was more of a gradual thing that you came to understand that Jesus, in fact, was your Savior. But when you, when you put your faith and trust in Him, of course, you, you've been born again, right? Given new life. But when you put your faith and trust in Christ, He took on your sin and you got His righteousness. There was this great exchange. Your sin for the righteousness of Christ. And now we stand before God as his adopted children, not by a self-righteousness, but only because of the righteousness of Christ we have received by faith. And the Bible says, the righteous shall live by faith. So today we're going to look at the book of Hebrews chapter 11, and we're going to look back on some stories from the book of Genesis and consider what does it really mean to live by faith? Because after all, we all are tempted 
to receive Jesus by faith and understand, okay, by faith, Jesus took on my sins. And then we kind of go about our lives and don't really think so much about living by faith. Well, what is faith anyway? Well, let's look at the first verse of Hebrews chapter 11 before we get into the later part of the passage. The writer to the Hebrews says in verse 1 of chapter 11, Now faith is the assurance of things hoped for, the conviction of things not seen. So that might be a, a very basic definition of faith. But of course, faith must have an object. You don't just have faith, right? You have faith in something or in someone, or you believe that something is going to happen. That's faith. It must have an object. And the writer to the Hebrews immediately then further explains and gives us some examples of what it means to actually have faith, because faith must have an object. Verse 2, for it, by faith, the people of old received their commendation. By faith, we understand that the universe was created by the word of God, so that what is seen was not made out of things that are visible. So right away, we see here that faith is, has an object in the, in the fact that very basically, we believe that the creation came from God. We believe that. We, by faith, we accept that the world around us was created by God. We believe that by faith. We have faith in God's word when it tells us that. So the creation story is an example, but then the writer of the Hebrews goes into many, many, many examples of people who then lived by faith to help us understand what faith really is. Look again at Hebrews chapter 11, beginning in verse 4. We see here, by faith, Abel offered to God a more acceptable sacrifice than Cain. Verse 5, by faith, Enoch was taken up so that he should not see death. Verse 7, by faith, Noah, being warned by God concerning events as yet unseen, in reverent fear constructed an ark for the saving of his household. Verse 8, by faith, Abraham obeyed when he was called to go out to a place that he was to receive as an inheritance. We'll look more carefully at that in a few minutes. Verse 11, by faith, Sarah, Abraham's wife, Sarah, received power, herself received power to conceive, even when she was past age. Verse 17, again, by faith, Abraham. Verse 21, by faith, Jacob. Verse 22, by faith, Joseph. So we see again and again and again the Lord giving us real examples of real people who lived by faith, explaining to us what faith really is. Verse 23 of Hebrews 11, by faith Moses. Verse 29, by faith the people crossed the Red Sea as if on dry land. He's referring here to the Exodus, of course. Verse 31, by faith Rahab the prostitute did not perish with those who were disobedient because she had given a friendly welcome to the spies. And he continues, verse 32, and what more shall we say? For time would fail me to tell of Gideon, Barak, Samson, Jephthah of David and Samuel and the prophets, referring there to Ezekiel and Isaiah and, and Jeremiah, who through faith did these things, through faith conquered kingdoms, enforced justice, obtained promises, stopped the mouths of lions, quenched the power of fire, escaped the edge of the sword, were made strong out of weakness, became mighty in war, put foreign army, armies to flight. Women received back their dead by resurrection. Some were tortured refusing to accept release so that they might rise again to a better life. Others suffered mocking and flogging, even chains and imprisonment. They were stoned. They were sawn in two. They were killed with a sword. They went about in skins of sheep and goats, destitute, afflicted, mistreated, 
of whom the world was not worthy, wandering about in deserts and mountains and in dens and caves of the earth. And all these, through, though commended through their faith, did not receive what was promised, since God had provided something better for us, that apart from us they should not be made perfect. Now get this, Hebrews chapter 12, verse 1. Therefore, in view of all these examples, therefore... He says, since we are surrounded by such a great cloud of witnesses, let us also lay aside every weight and sin which clings so closely and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us. Looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. So, What does it mean to actually live by faith? Or as the writer of the Hebrews says, to run by faith, to run the race before us. The Bible gives us an analogy of walking and running with the Lord by faith, living our lives. Keep in mind that these are real people. We'll read these stories in the Bible. He's, the writer of the Hebrews here is looking back mostly on Old Testament men and women, and these are real people. The Bible's not full of fairy tales, right? These are real people who actually did these things, living by faith. And we can feel intimidated. We can feel intimidated or inadequate when we compare ourselves to some of these folks. But we have to remember, they were just regular people. Verse 29, the Israelites, they by faith crossed the Red Sea. Well, of course, they were desperate. Imagine, they're on the edge of the Red Sea, the Egyptian army is closing in upon them, and they, by faith, walked through the Red Sea as if it was dry ground. It was dry ground. But they might have been intimidated, but someone had to take the first step. Verse 31 mentions Rahab. That We know, we know that story from Joshua chapter 2. Joshua, who was the military commander of the Israelites, led them into the Promised Land, and he sent two spies ahead of the army. And Rahab harbored those spies. She could have been killed for that. Harboring spies was a, 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 certainly uh, would have got her the death penalty, but she did that by faith. All these people, when the chips were down, lived by faith. We have to admit that we have a tendency not to do that. We have a tendency to, to accept Jesus by faith, and then we go about our lives... And just live our lives like anyone else. We have our responsibilities and our goals and we get busy and we have our schedules. We have our to-do list. We have our desires. We don't necessarily live by faith. We don't even think what it means to live by faith. We must have a faith that does not simply end with, yes, I have faith that Jesus died for my sins. As important as that was, that's not the end of the story. Well, if you are feeling rather intimidated by these stories we glanced at from God's word about great men and women of faith, I have good news for you. You already have this faith. This is not about uh, groping around to try to find a higher level of faith. It's not about trying harder or getting more energy to be like these people. No, we already have this faith. If you're a believer in Jesus Christ, you have it already. Let me explain with a story about George Mueller. George Mueller was the director of an orphanage in England in the late 1800s. He and his wife began by just taking orphans into their home. And as more and more orphans came into their home, as this ministry grew, 
the neighbors were getting bothered by all the, the noise and commotion, so they eventually had to, had to find another building to start an orphanage. And this ministry grew to incredible proportions. Uh, by the time the Mullers died, they had served over 10,000 orphans in England in the late 1800s. They had established 117 Christian schools. Over 120,000 kids attended these schools. And the Mullers became legendary. George Mueller became legendary for never soliciting money from anyone for the ministry. He truly lived by faith. And then there's legendary stories about, about food showing up at the last minute at the orphanage. You know, the kids are all gathered on the tables and there's no food. And then and somebody delivers food miraculously, seemingly miraculously. So people began to ask, you know, how can I have this faith that, that George Mueller has? I want to read a quote from a little booklet that George Mueller wrote about having this kind of faith. Toward the end of this booklet, he says, there's one more thing. Some say, oh, I shall never have the gift of faith Mr. Mueller has got. He has the gift of faith. Mueller says, this is the greatest mistake. It is a great error. There is not a particle of truth in it. He says, my faith is just the same kind of faith that all of God's children have had. It is the same kind that Simon Peter had, and all Christians may obtain like faith. My faith is their faith, though there may be more of it because my faith has been a little more developed by exercise than has theirs. But their faith is precisely the faith I exercise, only with regard to the degree mine may be more strongly exercised. So how do we exercise this faith that we already have? Turn again back to Hebrews chapter 11. After all, the Bible says we live by faith, not by sight. Paul wrote in Galatians chapter 2, verse 20, I've been crucified with Christ, and I no longer, I, it is no longer I who live, but Christ lives in me. And the life I live now in the body, I live by faith in the Son of God, who loved me and gave himself up for me. So what does it mean to live by faith? Well, let's turn back. And we see in Hebrews chapter 11, verse 8, By faith, Abraham obeyed when he was called to go out to a place that he was to receive as an inheritance. And he went out not knowing where he was going. Now let's pause there for a moment. Abraham, at that time his name was Abram. He, the Lord would change his name later to Abraham. But the writer of the Hebrews, looking back on this story from Genesis chapter 12, recalls, that Abram was told to go to the land the Lord would show him, and he went without even knowing where he was going. Can you imagine? Keep your finger in Hebrews chapter 11. Let's turn back and just read a few verses from Genesis chapter 12 where we see this story told. Genesis 12, beginning in verse 1. Now the Lord said to Abram, Go from the land from your country and your kindred and your father's house to the land that I will show you. And I will make you a great nation. And I will bless you and make your name great so that you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you and him who dishonors you I will curse. And in you all the families of the earth shall be blessed. So Abram went as the Lord had told him and Lot went with him. Abram was 75 years old when he departed from Haran. Abram took his wife Sarai 
and Lot, his brother's son, and all their possessions that they had gathered, and all the people that they had acquired in Haran, and they set out to go to the land of Canaan. So they went to the land of Canaan, but they didn't even know where they were going at first. Amazing. Back to Hebrews 11, verse 8. Notice the key word here is obeyed. By faith, Abram obeyed. So the first element of exercising our faith is obedience. Now, admittedly, it would be really hard to imagine doing this, right? Like I said, these are real people. Abraham was a real person. The Lord came to him. He was told him, go to the land, I'll show you. And he did it. He obeyed. Two and a half years ago, Nancy and I moved into a new home. Her, her mother, before she died, actually gave us some property near Manassas, and we built a new home. First time in 40 years of marriage that we've ever actually been in a new home. And it's wonderful. We love it. We designed it so we could live there forever. You know, everything's on one floor, and it's just a great place. And I admit, it would be really, really difficult for us if the Lord impressed upon us, you should go somewhere else, go to the mission field. It would be really, really hard. I admit that. But I hope I would have the faith to follow through. That's the kind of faith we must have, to obey the Lord, to do whatever he wants us to do by faith. Commentator Derek Kidner, looking back on this story of Abram leaving the place where he was raised to go to the land the Lord would show him, said that Abram at this point was exchanging the known for the unknown. How difficult that is to exchange the known for the unknown by faith. But what would be far more difficult than that scenario, moving to a foreign land without even knowing where you're going, would be the test that Abraham faced later in life. We read about that in Hebrews 11, verses 17 and 18. The writer to the Hebrews says, By faith Abraham, when he was tested, offered up Isaac. And he who had received the promises was in the act of offering up his only son, of whom it was said, through Isaac your offspring shall be named. He considered that God was able even to raise him from the dead, from which, figuratively speaking, he did receive him back. He's referring here, of course, to the story in Genesis chapter 22. So again, turn back with me briefly to Genesis chapter 22. And we see this dramatic story unfold. A story of Abraham literally being tested to the point of offering his only son as a sacrifice, a human sacrifice. Genesis chapter 22, beginning in verse 1. After these things, God tested Abraham and said to him, Abraham, and he said, here I am. He said, take your son, your only son Isaac, whom you love, and go to the land of Moriah and offer him there as a burnt offering on one of the mountains of which I shall tell you. Wait a minute, a human sacrifice? Yes, that was the test. Continuing in verse 3. So, Abraham rose early in the morning, saddled his donkey, and took two of his young men with him and his son Isaac. And he cut the wood for the burnt offering and arose and went to the place of which God had told him. On the third day, Abraham lifted up his eyes and saw the place from afar. Then Abraham said to his young men, stay here with the donkey I and the boy will go over there and worship and come again to you. And Abraham took the wood of the burnt offering and laid it on Isaac his son. And he took his hand in, the fire, in his hand the fire and the knife. So they went, both of them, together. And Isaac said to his father Abraham, My father? 
He said, here I am, my son. Behold, the fire and the wood, but where is the lamb for the burnt offering? Abraham said, God will provide for himself the lamb for a burnt offering, my son. So they both went, both of them, together. So here he is, being obedient, has his son actually carry the wood to the place where he would offer this burnt offering. And he was actually going to do it. Look at verse 9 and following. When they came to the place of which God had told him, Abraham built the altar there and laid the wood in order and bound Isaac, his son, and laid him on the altar on top of the wood. Then Abraham reached out his hand and took the knife to slaughter his son. But the angel of the Lord called to him from heaven and said, Abraham, Abraham. And he said, here I am. He said, do not lay a hand on the boy or do anything to him. For now I know that you fear God, seeing you have not withheld your son, your only son, from me. And Abraham lifted his eyes and looked, and behold, behind him was a ram caught in a thicket by his horns. And Abraham went and took the ram and offered it up as a burnt offering instead of his son. So Abraham called the name of that place, the Lord will provide. As it is said to this day, on the mount of the Lord, it shall be provided. So this was a test. The Lord was not actually going to have Abraham kill his son, but Abraham didn't know that. It was a test. Now, it is highly unlikely that we will ever face such a dramatic test of our faith. But what is a certainty, what is absolutely guaranteed as a certainty, is that we face situations every day where we are tested. You know, life is a series of choices. It's a series of decisions, moment by moment, are we going to obey or not? So-called small decisions, not like this one. Bruce Waltke, Old Testament scholar, co-authored some comments about this story with Kathy Fredericks. They write this, How morally questionable to ask Abraham to violate a moral law that will later become the sixth of his famous commandments. You shall not take innocent life. Perhaps one can make a stab at justifying the command on the basis that the Lord owns Isaac's life. Nevertheless, the command teeters on the edge of morality. We are left with the inexplicable and exacting realization that faith demands radical obedience. Abraham is asked to behave in a way that is illogical, absurd, and to say the least, non-conventional from the human perspective. Within the biblical worldview, however, such radical behavior proves the true nature of biblical faith. So, when the Lord tests you and says to you, forgive someone as I've forgiven you, what do you do? When the Lord says, love your neighbor, do we take the time even to get to know our neighbors? It's hard to love some we don't know. When the Lord says, be generous, you must decide, what does that mean? How do I apply this in my life? How do I exercise my faith? So these examples of, of Abraham leaving the place of his home to a land the Lord would show him and being willing to sacrifice his only son, it, it, it seems in terms of exercise, it's like running a marathon or an ultramarathon. Or I found out recently that registration is now open for the World Marathon Challenge. 
seven marathons in seven days on seven continents. I'm not making this up. In fact, a woman in Arlington did this a few years ago. She completed it, Jill Jameson. How did she do it? Quote, one foot in front of the other. The Lord will not test you beyond what you can bear. He will not require you to exercise your faith to the equivalent of seven marathons in seven days on seven continents. Last time I ran a marathon, I told Nancy, that's the last marathon I'm going to run. She said, you said that last year. (laughs) I really mean it this time, though. I'm not going to do this anymore. So he won't require you to exercise your faith to that degree, but he might require you to do the equivalent of walking around the block, right? Day by day, these so-called seemingly insignificant challenges are tests of our faith. He requires us to tithe. Maybe he won't require you to go in the mission field, but he requires you to give so others can go. Obedience is an act of faith. But of course, before you obey, you must discern what the Lord wants you to do, how to actually live by faith. And he reveals his will to us through his word, through his word by the power of his spirit. So when you read God's word or you hear God's word preached, you must ask yourself, okay, how do I apply this? How do I actually live out my faith? That's your decision point. It's not seven marathons in seven days on seven continents. That's not the exercise he's requiring you to do. But he is requiring you to do something. I've got a book on my shelf. I've read just parts of it by Kevin DeYoung, a PCA pastor. Just do something is the title of the book. Written primarily for younger people, but I think it's applicable to all of us. So... When your spouse or your parent or child says something offensive to you, you're offended, what do you do? You forgive. When you're tempted to slack off at work, you don't do it. When it would be so easy to tell a white lie that seemingly wouldn't have no impact on anybody, you tell the truth. That's the test we all face day by day. And I want to warn you, if you don't recognize these tests of faith, if you ignore the Spirit's prompting you to apply the Word in certain ways, you develop a callousness, a hardness against the Word of the Lord. And that is a dangerous position to be in. So when discerning God's will and deciding to obey, keep in mind these great men and women of faith, they were just regular people. In fact, they were major screw-ups, most of them. Abraham, who gets the most press of anyone here in Hebrews chapter 11, Abraham had a child out of wedlock. He did not trust the Lord to the point where he really believed that he would father a great nation. Took matters into his own hands. And then when he and Sarah went down into Egypt, when there was a famine, they went down to Egypt. Remember the story? They're approaching Egypt, and he knew he was going to get into some difficulty with the Pharaoh. So he said, "Um, tell you what, Sarah, when we get down there, let's just tell them you're my sister. And Pharaoh took her into his palace. And guess what? They didn't play tiddlywinks. He did that. He did it twice. Rahab, the writer of the Hebrews, and back in Genesis, we see Rahab is identified in the Bible as Rahab the prostitute. Making the point, the Lord uses regular people like you and I. David is mentioned as a great man of faith. We all know what David did. Let me tell you about a hard-headed Marine the Lord 
spoke to once years ago. As Daniel mentioned, I was a major at that time on active duty. As we said in the aviation world, I was a helicopter pilot flying along, fat, dumb, and happy, fully expecting to do at least 20 years because in those days you did 20 years on active duty, you get a pension. Less than 20 years, you get nothing. Now they have kind of a hybrid program where you, where you pay into kind of like a 401k. But anyway, less than 20 years, you get zip. I had 14 years on active duty, and I felt called to the ministry. I had a sleepless night. A couple of Bible passages came to my mind. One, maybe out of context, but the passage was, you know, what does it profit a man to gain the whole world and lose his life? Lord was saying, Don, you've got to leave active duty and become a pastor. I said, Lord, you've got the wrong guy. I'm doing, I'm doing great. I'm a major. I've got tenure. I'm doing at least 20 years in the Marine Corps. Another passage came to mind. What is, I think, the shortest parable in Scripture? Jesus told the story about the man who, who, dug, who discovered a buried treasure in a field, went away, sold everything he had so he could come back and buy that field. Had a sleepless night, went into the squadron, thought about it some more, thought, I've got to do this. Called up Nancy, said, Nancy, can you, can you meet me for dinner halfway between the squadron and home? And I told her, I really feel strongly about this. I need to leave active duty and, and go off to be a pastor. And the Lord had prepared her heart as well, even though we had a three-year-old and a five-year-old. And, and we did it. We went off to Covenant Seminary. And thankfully, looking back, the Lord... Uh, brought up someone in my life who said, you know, you ought to think about the reserves. So I stayed in the reserves, retired as a reservist. So now I do get a little bit of a pension now that I'm 60 years old. But the point is, you know, the Lord will do some pretty radical things, but we have to be listening for him. We have to be obedient and discern what does the Spirit want us to do. So before we can discern what to do, we have to be listening. We have to be open to the Lord's leading. Notice in Genesis chapter 12, verse 1, and Genesis chapter 22, verse 1, in both cases, the Lord called out to Abraham and he said, here I am, Lord. He was listening. He was open to guidance. I, needed to be a, I need to be a better listener. I know that. To the Lord and also to others. I, a few years ago, thought my hearing was getting a little challenge, so I went to the hearing doctor, whatever they call you know, the te- got a hearing test, and uh, she said, well, you're on the low end of normal. In other words, I don't have a hearing problem, I have a listening problem. <laughs> we must be open to the Lord's call in our lives. Living by faith is, first of all, of course, obeying Christ but discerning what he wants us to do by his spirit through his word and then being open, listening to his leading. We face tests of faith every day. But remember, you have this faith already. You just have to exercise it. Now, don't overanalyze this. Kevin DeYoung, PCA pastor, shares in his book, Just Do Something, a story of when he was preaching about discerning the will of God. He says this, he says, once while preaching on this topic, I said in, bold, in a bold declarative statement, God doesn't care where you go to school or where you live or what job you take. He continues, a thoughtful young woman talked to me afterward and was discouraged 
to hear that God didn't care about the most important decisions in her life. I explained to her that I probably wasn't very clear. God certainly cares about these decisions insofar as he cares for us and every detail of our lives. But in another sense, DeYoung says, and this was the point I was trying to make, these are not the most important issues in God's book. The most important issues for God are moral purity, theological fidelity, compassion, joy, our witness, faithfulness, hospitality, love, worship, and faith. These, he says, are his big concerns. The problem is that we tend to focus most of our attention on everything else. We obsess over things that God has not mentioned and may never mention, while, by contrast, we spend little time on the things God has already revealed to us in the Bible. I mentioned I get to travel around and visit chaplains. I was on a lengthy flight earlier this month uh, from Dulles out to Seattle, Tacoma to visit chaplains at Joint Base Lewis-McChord. And I did some reading, but I also thought, you know, I don't watch much TV. Maybe there's something on the, the United Airlines, you know, offering here that I can watch. And I, I felt like that guy who said, you know, when he got cable TV, he has 400 channels and there's nothing to watch. But I did find uh, an interesting series hosted by the great football quarterback Peyton Manning. It's um, top 10 or the greatest of all time, something like that. And I watched this episode, The Greatest Daredevils of All Time. Spoiler alert, Evil Knievel was voted number one daredevil. But there were 10 daredevils, including Evil Knievel, that have done some amazing things. First of all, Alex Honnold He is a free solo climber. In other words, he climbs mountains, I mean, faces of rock cliffs with no equipment. Solo free climbs. He's the only person to climb El Capitan free solo. Someone died last month trying to do it, by the way. Then there's Debbie Lawler. Her father was a motorcycle racer, so of course for her 10th birthday, Dad gave her a motorcycle. And she began racing motorcycles, and then... About 10 years later, she began jumping motorcycles. At 22 years old, she jumped a motorcycle 101 feet, breaking Evil Knievel's indoor record. The next day, Evil Knievel went out and broke her record. (laughs) But she did it, 101 feet. And then a couple months later, jumped 146 feet and crashed. Debbie Lawler, daredevil. Then there's the Flying Willendas. You know, this family that does these amazing tightrope. They, they don't just walk across tightropes. They ride bicycles across tightropes. They build human pyramids and walk across tightropes. It's amazing. And I was watching this. I was thinking, you know, I admire their courage. I mean, I admire anyone who, who sees an obstacle and really goes after it and, and takes on a great challenge. But on the other hand, they're a little bit crazy, right? I mean, on this hand, you've got courage and then you, somewhere you go down this daredevil timeline or this line, daredevil line, and, and you get kind of over here. I think the biblical word is foolish. So, what did Abraham's friends think? Can you imagine? Yep, I'm packing up the wife and everybody, and we're moving to somewhere, and the Lord's going to show us where to go. Oh, really? Okay. Foolish? I'm sure there are people who thought, what an idiot. 
The Apostle Paul faced some of this. He wrote to the Corinthians who were successful, rich people. He said, yes, you're rich and you're successful and I'm a fool, okay? He said, I'm a fool for Christ. Somebody is going to think that you are a fool when you exercise your faith. It's fine. Exercise your faith in Christ and don't be discouraged. Don't think you have to run seven marathons in seven days and seven continents when you exercise your faith. Take a spiritual walk around the block. Those little decisions the Lord puts before us every day. A lifetime of walking with Christ. You will not regret it. Would you pray with me? Father, now as we have the privilege of participating in the sacrament where Jesus said, do this in remembrance of me, help us to live by faith. Help us not only to reflect on the fact that we are saved by grace through faith, but also that we live by faith. Thank you for the privilege of opening your word today. Thank you for the privilege of being a fool for Christ. Help us to do so with great gusto in Jesus' name. Amen.